0: If you're a uh, beloved listener in Melbourne, you may be familiar with the name Mabu Mabu. Or perhaps you've had a bite to eat at the Tuck Shop Cafe in Yarraville or Big Esso Bar and Kitchen in Federation Square. Well, the powerhouse behind these uh, popular venues is Chef Norni Berra. Now, Norni is from the Merian people of Mer Island and the Torres Strait. And on top of being an executive chef and CEO extraordinaire, she's recently put out a cookbook which shares the name of her business. But Mabu Mabu is much more than a cookbook. It tells stories of her life, provides a guide to native ingredients and shares recipes that champion their flavours. Nornie, I wish we were sitting in one of your venues, but uh, rather than the sterility of studios, but it's a pleasure to welcome you to our little program. You describe yourself as an island girl. Tell me more about yourself and where you spent the early years of your life.
1: Uh, Well, growing up in the Torres Strait is just amazing to be able to live on a tropical island. And you know, be around tradition and and family and also not just that, but the cultural food that we grow up with and eat. And um, it's all a part of our lives. So, you know, eating and and planting and growing and fishing and walking on the reef every morning is a part of life. And it's just an amazing way to grow up because you learn to be very self-efficient and you learn how to feed yourself really quite early on.
0: And wherever you go in the world, you'll always be an island girl.
1: Oh, yes. You you can go anywhere in the world, but you can't take the island out of the island, girl.
0: <laughs> Tell me about George, your dad. He sounds like a bit like...
1: Oh, yeah. My dad was, like, you know, really awesome. He he instilled the the vision of, of making sure that, like, you know, I could stand on my own two feet and, and make sure that I could succeed on my own. And in his short life, he just didn't get to achieve as much as he probably wanted to. So I think I've been doing that for the both of us for the last few years.
0: He raised you on his own.
1: Yeah, I grew up with a single father, which is amazing. Yeah, You can imagine I was born in 1979, so it was just the cusp of ending the 70s and coming into the 80s and um, being a 20-year-old man himself and raising me um, by himself was, uh, I guess, a really big achievement.
0: We're going to be talking a lot about damper later, but you write that your earliest memories are of Dad teaching me how to make damper when I was barely able to see over. A- the, over the stovetop. So here he is, a bloke with all sorts of dreams and ideas, but he didn't get the chance to implement them.
1: Yeah, you know, his first ever entrepreneurial thing that he did with us was put a bamboo wall down the middle of the living room and make pumpkin dampers and pumpkin buns for the locals and made a tuck shop. So I was not even in double figures yet, and watching him make damper and then learning how to do it myself and delivering it to the locals to keep the generator running so we would have lights on.
0: (laughs) Now, every month a barge would bring in supplies, powdered milk, sugar, flour, but everything else was local.
1: Yeah, I mean, the islands are so remote and so... Relying on a barge is the minimal part of it, you know, that brings in the staples maybe of flour and rice. But when you think about all year round of you eating, it comes out of the ocean or you're you're actually planting it in your backyard or it comes out of there. So.
0: I like the thought of you growing up with a spear in your hand because you fished every day.
1: Yeah, I... Um, I was uh, I loved to pickle things, so I would walk on the reef every morning to get fresh octopus uh, to pickle the day before and have that for breakfast. And, uh, yeah, I would take the kerosene lamp out there when it was still dark but morning and the reef would be out solid so that you could catch whatever's, you know, in the lagoons or crawling on the reef.
0: Norni, I had no idea that the Torres Straits were so multicultural before the rest of Australia.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like you've got to think about the war and the beach de mer and the pearling that all came through and that Indonesian sort of and Japanese influences that came through um, the Torres Strait. But then also the islands were, you know, named and renamed from Spanish to Dutch. And so we've had a multicultural sort of upbringing. So we sort of, you know, embrace every culture and and love everyone and hate no one so it's it's one of those great things where multiculturalism is very important because it is a part of our lives.
0: You have a way with words as well as a way with food Medea. Now it must have been a shock to leave all that behind and head to the mainland which you did when you were still in high school
1: yeah I mean kids uh, kids from the islands uh, tend to get billeted out or sent down to mainland Australia for a better education I guess because there's only literally one high school there so not every kid can go. Um, so coming down to mainland yes was a big cultural shock when you've spent your whole life living on a tropical island and now you you're in a city. but it was a part of what we like you know kids like myself knew that this was going to happen.
0: Now, if uh, Dad George was an interesting bloke, I have to say that Grandma Abba is equally so. Tell us about your grandma. Oh,
1: yes. Um, so my Grandma Abba, uh, I I love her so much because uh, w- there's generations that have lived with her. So my dad's parents died when he was young, so he at some stage lived with her. And so when I came of age, obviously, I, I lived with her too and... She was a very Christian but amazing lady that would wear every colour under the rainbow and she would always wear a hibiscus in her hair. And, <laughs> but she also had a garden that was just full of island plants and, and fruits and berries that we grow up with. So you just felt like you were at home anyway.
0: You pay tribute to her with the first tea you developed. Tell us about Abba's Tea.
1: Yeah, I um, my first ever tea that I made is called Abba's tea after her, and it's it's primarily a a hibiscus base with the native florals in it, and I wanted it to be colourful like she was, and and so the tea was just one of those things that I wanted to name after her because she was a great stability and influence in my life
0: growing up. So you take the plunge, you moved to Melbourne in the late 90s, and uh, I would have thought that Melbourne's hospitality industry was uh, pretty patriarchal.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, the industry was very hard at the start to get in, but, you know, I grew up around a dad that was like never give up and so I knocked on every door and just worked extremely hard to get my foot in the door and then I just never left.
0: There was very little knowledge, I guess, at the time of native ingredients or any sort of indigenous cuisine.
1: Well, I mean, yes. I mean, like, you know, the 90s was a different thing. Uh, like most places that were coming up were either Thai or Italian. You know, it, it's it's a different thing when you're a young kid starting in the industry. You're learning from scratch and then you're thinking, hey, look, you know, we have our own cuisine too. Why not try that one out?
0: Mabu Mabu started with a stroke of luck in 2018. Tell me the story.
1: Yeah, I started off as a small little stall in the South Melbourne market, and um, I was just very lucky. I was um, people were asking me for more and more things, and I was making you know native curry paste and, and native dips that you know I either grew up with or, or developed in my career along the way, and. And also I wanted to put native ingredients on the map and, you know, have them the hero of dishes. So I started off with that and then graduated to my first cafe and then it just skyrocketed
0: from there. Mabu Mabu means help yourself.
1: Yeah, it's um, it's a saying of almost going bon appétit. Uh, so there's always a big family table that's called a Mabu Mabu table and you just say Mabu Mabu and everybody grabs a plate and helps themselves.
0: Now, for a business that started so recently in 2018, you've come a hell of a long way. How on earth did you manage to juggle all this and survive the country's strictest COVID lockdowns?
1: I guess um, when you grow up with nothing, when you don't have a choice of making sure that your business survives, you go that extra mile and... Obviously, I looked back to my past with my dad and how he used to say to me that, like, you know, it used to be a dollar a litre for petrol so that he could keep the lights on for us. So I thought, how am I going to keep the lights on for my people and also for, you know, the business? So I did what he did and I did damper classes and I would do seven to, six to seven of them a day and I would send out kits to um, the corporate companies and I sent newsletters out and I just said, hey, do you want to do this <laughs> for morale?
0: And uh, you name your restaurant in Federation Square Big Esso, not to be confused with the oil company, which means <laughs> thank <laughs> you, your way of saying thanks.
1: Yeah, Esso means thanks and I just really wanted to say thank you to everybody that got us there. You know, got us to, that was all of our customers, all of the people that have worked for us along the way and that helped us achieve opening up at um, Federation Square in the city here in Melbourne.
0: You are unstoppable. Now, you're on a mission to take Indigenous ingredients out of the fancy restaurants and into every kitchen, but I, I suspect you also want to be a role model.
1: Yeah look I want to be a role model am um, 100% I think it's it's our duty to show what Australia really does have to offer. And, you know, I want to be able to have a face that, you know, of those kids out there that are a bit like me who um, come from really remote communities and really know that you can achieve anything if you put your mind to it. And I I really do believe that. And if you stick with your guns and you you want to work hard and you, you believe in what you're doing, then I think you can achieve anything.
0: Now, there's a part in the book called The Native Pantry. It's a glossary of all the different kinds of native ingredients. What are your absolute essentials?
1: Oh, my essentials has got to be the pepperberry. It's right up there. Um, Pretty much because, like, it is our natural pepper to Australia. Delicious can be savoury or sweet if you want to because it's got those beautiful clovey flavours to it. It's a number one that you should have on any pantry and I don't know why we're not using it more often because it's just so unique to us. Um, Number two would have to be the wattle seed, because there's so many different types in Australia, you know, over 165 species to 600. (laughs) And they all have different flavours, all have different ways. And they're just so unique to us as well, which is, you know, gives us that beautiful baking element to desserts, to even making, you know, it marries well with chocolate. Like, um, so those are my top two. (laughs) <laughs> Very and I believe
0: saltbush also makes the cut. Oh,
1: yes, saltbush definitely makes the cut because there's so many different types from all around Australia so we can use it in things. But it gives you that natural saltiness that you want but also an added bonus of like that herb sort of oregano feel to it at the end too. So you're getting two for one here. So like why wouldn't you use it? And it and it's so good with all the, all the natural sort of game meats and stuff that we use here
0: in Australia. I'm whizzing through the glossary and there's some marvelous things, strawberry gum, what's strawberry gum?
1: Oh, strawberry gum. Yes. It's one of my favorite dessert herbs. So it actually comes from a gum leaf. So it's in the family of the eucalyptus, which is super cool. So it gives you this uh, kind of minty freshness that you want, but also this like um, intense flavor of strawberry extract. And it just comes from a leaf. and it's really super cool. Can you imagine a leaf giving you these all these flavors that you're going to put in your next dessert?
0: Now, the yam is a very underrated ingredient in this country.
1: Yes, I am a yam girl. <laughs> I have been pushing the yams. Um, I talk about it a lot because I really want people to eat more yams because why waste your time on a boring potato when you can have so many multicultural different flavours of yams that come from all over Australia and they're all different. You can get them. There's so many of them and they just light up your plate when you're looking at those beautiful <laughs> colours
0: that come from it. Yams are yummy now now we should be eating more australian meat shouldn't we like uh, like kangaroo
1: Yes, I think we should. It's a, it's sustainable. It's actually you can eat less of it because it's more filling. So we should be eating kangaroo. We should be eating emu. I'm we sorry, be eating, emu? You know. Really? Yes. Yeah, I look, it's one of our signature dishes that we do, and um, it is an amazing game meat to be used, and it is there. It's sustainable. It's great. You know, it comes from our country. It doesn't come from anywhere else. And so, you know, it's one of those things that we should be eating more of.
0: This is uh, LNL on Radio National. I'm talking to Noni Berra from the Merriam people of Mer Island in the Torres Strait and she's the executive chef, CEO and owner of Mabu Mabu. Her book, Mabu Mabu, an Australian kitchen cookbook, is published by Hardy Grant. I see that you've got recipes in the book, not only for emu and kangaroo, but also for crocodile. I've got lots of kangaroos on the farm, but we're a bit low on crocodiles.
1: Well, I mean, like we should be eating more of them. They're becoming a pest in Australia, you know, and, and because they're farmed as well, it's really great. Why are we wasting just the skin off it? It's, again, a sustainable meat that, you know, the fashion industry can take the take the skins and we can eat the meat. And it's um, actually very delicious. And yeah, they're again another delicious, like you know, game meat that we should be using more and and eating more sustainable foods.
0: And you also make the point that we should eat all parts of you know pretty much of everything if we can. you're particularly yeah. you're particularly fond of kangaroo tails. I
1: I am uh, I am because you know if you want to think of kangaroo tails in, in a more common sense, then you think of it as similar to oxtail or osuubuku and those kind of things, like, you know, kangaroo tail is. uh, I'm not into just eating the pretty bits. I think we should (laughs) eat everything. Okay.
0: Now, are native ingredients hard to come by or is it just knowing where to look?
1: I think you know. In the past, I think people it it was, but I think these days, I think what we do have to do as a society is ask for it because the more we ask for it, the more it will be there for us. And it's around; it's always at market. It's just that no one asks for it, so they don't get it. So when the when your your local grocer goes to the big markets to buy their produce, it does exist there. If you don't ask for it, they won't they won't get it. Uh, Is any
0: available in the supermarkets?
1: At the moment, yeah, the supermarkets are changing the way that they put things out and I think, you know, if you start looking at it there are things like crocodile going in there. There are things like emu going in there. We have spices now starting to go on the, um, on the shelves too as well. And especially those main ingredients that I love so much too, like salt, which pepperberry and wattle seeds. Those are more common things that you see everywhere from samphire to cacalla as well. So you will see them a lot more in supermarkets now as we go, but not just that, even in your local groceries or even, even in your local spice market.
0: Now, the wireless isn't the- the best medium to uh, reveal food stories, but tell me about, for example, sop sop.
1: Sop sop, yes, sop sop is uh, is a traditional dish made with you know uh, root vegetables and yams and pumpkins and and cooked in coconut milk, which is very traditional to home. But it <laughs> it also has this great story that if you you make it for your loved ones, so. If you plan on having a partner forever, then you, at some stage, make them Sop Sop. So if you bring someone home and your auntie asks, have they made Sop Sop for you? And if you say no, they're like, well, we don't
0: need to know. You're not going to stick around for (laughs) much. So Sop Sop is a very significant dish.
1: Yeah, it's like a traditional staple that uh, we all grow up with. And um, it's that whole idea, like, you know, where everything comes out of the ground, you grate your own coconuts, you squeeze your own milk, and then you make, it, make the dish from scratch. And it's so simple, but it's so delicious.
0: I'd like you to give us a crash course on damper. There's a whole section in the book on damper. It was the first thing your dad ever taught you to cook. Take us through the mysteries of damper.
1: Oh, the damper is awesome because we always make this mistake. If you've ever been to camp and stuff, you you you've had that piece of damper that's wrapped around a stick, or you know, uh, has been thrown into the campfire, and it comes out a little bit like really rock hard, a little <laughs> bit. And uh, so, the the secret to making beautiful damper is your liquid. It's all down to how sticky your dough is. And if you have a nice sticky dough, you will always have a nice fluffy damper. And that is the the secret to making good damper. And and the thing is, damper is one of those great things that absorbs all flavours and you can make it in any flavour you want and to your specifications of your taste. So damper is one of those things that you can really kind of experiment on making your own home bread.
0: I guess it's best to wrap it in banana leaves if available.
1: Oh, yes, definitely. That's island style right there because you get that nice steam effect on the outside. So you're steaming your damper and then it it stays in that nice loaf so that you can have those beautiful banana leaf flavours on the outside as well.
0: You mentioned earlier pumpkin damper, which I've never heard of. Tell me about pumpkin damper.
1: Yeah, so it's a, it's the first thing I ever made and I think a lot of it had to do with my dad knowing that I didn't like pumpkins. <laughs> so he would um, put the pumpkin into the damper so that I would eat it. <laughs> so it's a great way of kind of making this beautiful, like orange, you know, uh, vibrant... Um, I guess, bread for kids, because I didn't, I didn't grow up with Wonder White sandwiches. Like, you know, my only bread was damper or island pancakes or island scones. So these are the things that I grew up with. And, and yeah, you, you have to make it fun for kids, I guess, too.
0: Well, let's go from damper to wattleseed butter, because you, you talk a lot about various flavoured butters.
1: Yeah, I think we limit ourselves sometimes, you know. Uh, I mean, butter can be fun, you know, if you're making it. And you can make it in all different types of butter, whatever butter you like. Everybody tends to have butter, some type of butter in the fridge. And mix it up with things. Mix it with wattle seeds because that will give you like those really nice sort of coffee flavours, but also that really chocolatey um, hazelnut feel to it. So it's quite nice to just experiment when you're first using native ingredients to, to make some butter.
0: There's also a lot of seafood recipes. Tell us about a couple of those.
1: Yeah, well, I'm an island girl, so I I, uh, I grew up with a lot of seafood. And so, you know, periwinkles are in there because that's just a childhood love of sea snails, you know. Um, and we should just be eating more more shellfish and, and more pippies and, and those kind of things because, again, great sustainability elements to them, but also they're just so delicious, and I think we sort of turn past them when we should be eating more of it because it's just too delicious not to.
0: It will come as a great shock to listeners that you, uh, that you don't drink coffee. So tell me about your <laughs> breakfast of champions.
1: Oh, yeah, my breakfast of champions, Yes. Breakfast of champions is the best thing ever. So if you're in your local market areas, go down to your local seafood area. And that's what I grew up with. I used to eat pickled octopus every morning and seafood elements. So my breakfast of champions is always a spread of seafood. Uh, So you can get oysters, you can get um, scampies, whatever you feel like for breakfast. And that is the way that I like to start my breakfast of champions
0: for sure. I like your recipe for stuffed squid, but if you could suggest one from the book for the listeners to to try, what would it be?
1: Oh, that's that's a big call. That's a big call. Um, I'm going to have to say that... You know, besides the, the damper element, because I just think we should be eating more damper in the world because it's naturally good for you, um, I do think that we should be eating more sustainable meats and I would recommend doing the kangaroo tail because the kangaroo tail not only has its own natural flavours to it, but it really does hold those beautiful natives that kind of work with it really well. And that's like my meat option, but um, everybody should try soft, Sop for sure.
0: I should point out that most of your recipes are very simple. We're talking three to five steps deliberate I guess.
1: Yeah, I think I think cooking when you're when you're starting to cook with native ingredients it shouldn't be overcomplicated and it's just for everyday cooks. This is not for chefs, this is not for experienced cooks. This is for people that everyday are going to try something different and make it very easy and accessible to be able to do
0: so. I described you a moment ago as unstoppable. What's your next project?
1: Oh, you never know. I, like I never know where I'm going to go next. No, there's some really exciting things coming up and um, you'll just have to keep an eye on our space and see where we go because I never want to l- give it away. But um, <laughs> I think it's one of those great things that we are evolving all the time and, you know, I love that.
0: Good on you, Norni. Norni Barrow, executive chef, CEO and owner of Mabu Mabu. And her book is called Mabu Mabu, an Australian kitchen cookbook, and it's published by Hardy Grant. Thanks, morning. Thank you. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.